Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. As we approach Joshua chapter 7, the nation of Israel is fresh off a resounding victory over the city of Jericho. Now, they can't really take a lot of credit for it. They just did what God told them to do. They marched, blew trumpets, and yelled for seven days. God did the heavy lifting. He's the true conqueror. The real reason those walls fell. Joshua and the rest of the Israelites were just the beneficiaries of God's power. They were in the right place at the right time by God's grace. Nevertheless, we read at the end of chapter 6 that Joshua's fame begins to spread throughout the land. Hopefully the success won't go to their heads. But next up on Israel's promised land itinerary is the city of Ai. And compared to Jericho, conquering Ai should be a cakewalk. As long as the Lord is with them, a rinky-dink town like Ai doesn't stand a chance. But what if the Lord isn't with them? What happens then? The Israelite success was utterly dependent upon God's presence. And today we see what happens when they try to win without him. So open up to Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. I pray this time that we have would be good for us, beneficial for us, that you would challenge and encourage and comfort and remind us of all the things we need to know who you are and what you've done for us. But I pray this time of worship would be honoring to you. Instead of constantly asking, what did I get out of it? I pray that we would leave confident that we gave you our hearts. We gave you our minds. We gave you our attention, even if just for an hour on Sunday morning. I pray that this time of focused, intentional worship would glorify you. And that this one hour and 15 minutes, give or take, uh, of intentional worship would carry over into the rest of our weeks. uh, That our whole lives would be marked by prayer, by singing, by worship, by looking to your word for wisdom and remembering who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for this word that you have given to us. Uh, As we've said before, thank you that we don't have to speculate about who you are. We don't have to guess about who you are. We don't have to invent who you are, but rather you've, you've told us who you are. You've told us what you've done. And so thank you for this word that we have the privilege and the joy and the honor of having and studying, not just today, but going back to day in and day out through the ups and downs of life. Lord, again, thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this place and these people. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, 
of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So to understand the storm that is brewing in Joshua 7 verse 1, we need to think back to part of chapter 6 that we read last week. Chapter 6 verse 18, this is as the Israelites are getting ready to storm Jericho. Joshua tells them, But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So just before Jericho's walls fell, the Israelites were explicitly commanded not to keep the plunder for themselves. They were clearly warned about the destruction and the trouble they would face if they failed to listen. But one man just couldn't help himself. And that man was named Achan. And because this one man broke faith, God's anger burned against Israel. That phrase, broke faith, gets at the idea of treachery. By committing this sin, Achan became nothing less than a traitor against God. And when even a single Israelite, someone in a covenantal relationship with God, by his grace, breaks faith, God has every right to be angry. But wait a minute. Angry against the whole nation? That's the part that might rub us the wrong way. Why doesn't God direct his wrath at just this one guy? It doesn't appear that anyone else committed the same sin. So why should God be angry with the entire nation? Well, part of why we have a tough time with this idea is that we live in a day and an age that is far more individualistic than the ancient world. There is a much stronger sense of corporate, collective, communal identity and responsibility back then compared to now. There's a tension within Scripture concerning this. There's a balance to be found. For example, Deuteronomy 5, verses 9 and 10, don't shy away from stressing the corporate, the communal, the collective side of things. In the Ten Commandments, it indicates that if a man sins, his offspring may suffer too, to the third and fourth generation. That's one side. But then later in the same book, Deuteronomy 24, 16, we see the other side of the spectrum. Individuals are held accountable for their sins and no one else's. So which one is it? Well, it's not either or. It's both and. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel issues a long, heartfelt prayer of repentance on behalf of his fellow Israelites. Now, there's no reason to believe that Daniel was directly involved in all the sins that he mentions in that prayer. The picture the Bible gives us of Daniel is one man of incredible faithfulness. 
Nevertheless, Daniel counts himself among the guilty and begs for God's mercy. And again, that might sound strange to our modern ears. But it's the reality of the Bible. And it might have something to teach us. Look ahead to verse 2. We read there. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avin, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but... Eh, not about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of I. And the men of I killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted. And became as water. While Achan's sin was clearly the primary reason that Israel lost this battle, it may not have been the only reason. There are hints of arrogance present within Israel after their victory over Jericho. For example, as far as we can tell, Joshua does not consult with God before they start their fight. On top of that, the spies brush off the need to send all their forces into I. As far as they're concerned, this is Duke versus the Citadel. But maybe the most damning evidence of potential arrogance from the people of Israel is the absence of the Ark of the Covenant. The tangible sign of God's presence that led them through the Jordan River, that led them over Jericho's collapsed walls. We've talked about it the past two weeks. God's presence appears to be an afterthought. So knowing all that we know, it's not a surprise when Israel is routed. 36 casualties out of 3,000 men may not sound like a lot, But it was enough to send a message. So Israel returns to camp with their tails between their legs and their hearts melting. How the tables have turned. Verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So Joshua and the elders do what they should do. They grieve. And they also do what they should have 
but maybe didn't do before they ever approached I. They seek God. You can understand why they're so distraught. Hadn't God promised Israel victory? Hadn't he assured them of success? Hadn't God told Joshua word for word that no man shall be able to stand before you? Israel put all their eggs in this basket and the bottom just fell out. Was it all a lie? Has God broken faith with them? Joshua even wonders how much better life would be if they had just stayed on the other side of the river. Which sounds dangerously similar to the Israelites grumbling against God back in the wilderness. If we had just remained slaves in Egypt, things would be so much better. So after the mountaintop experience of Jericho, the trumpets, the victory, the spreading fame, everything seems to be falling apart for God's people. I is celebrating. Perhaps the other kings of the promised land have heard the news and are breathing a sigh of relief. Israel is in crisis. And you know, maybe the worst part is that no one knows why. Except maybe one man. A man named Achan. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. As we mentioned earlier, God does not tell Joshua that Achan has sinned. That one man has sinned. He tells Joshua that they, corporately, collectively, communally, have transgressed his covenant. And as long as this sin lurks beneath the surface, 
As long as this insidious cancer remains untreated, Israel can expect more of the same. The sin must be brought out into the light. And only then can it be properly dealt with. Because if Israel loves gold and silver, plunder devoted to destruction more than they love God, they'll be devoted to destruction themselves. Verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. The process of exposing that sin was long tedious and public. And it's worth noting that only when his name comes up, after a long process of elimination was performed and he was forced to look Joshua in the eye, only then does Achan come clean. We're not in a position to determine just how sincere Achan's repentance was in verse 20. Only God can do that. But the damage has already been done. The sin must be paid for. So Achan, his sons and daughters, and even his livestock are all put to death. Now this causes some of the same discomfort we experienced last week. Reading about the violence of the conquest of the promised land. 
if you want a deeper treatment of how to navigate some of that, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon. You can talk to me after the service. But focusing just on today's text, here are a few things to consider. First, the part that we likely find most disturbing is that Achan's sons and daughters were put to death with him. When we read that, our minds may jump to the horrific image of children being sentenced to death. But it's worth noting that the text doesn't clearly indicate how old Achan's sons and daughters were. For all we know, they could have been adults. In the book of Job, Job's kids were described the same way. Job's sons and daughters. And they clearly were not small children. Second, closely related to that point, some commentators suggest that there was common knowledge of Achan's sin within his household. Now, if that's true, which again, the text doesn't clearly say either way, if they knew what Achan had done and didn't say anything about it, didn't address it, that would make Achan's sons and daughters complicit in the sin. They aided and abetted. And finally, some of this goes back to what we discussed earlier. Corporate, communal, collective identity and responsibility. Again, we may find it odd that the entire nation suffers because of one man's sin. We may find it distasteful that Achan's household is punished along with him. But whether we like it or not, the communal, collective, corporate worldview exists in the Bible. And again, we might have something to learn from it. And of course, at the end of the day, as we said last week, God is God. He gets to do what he wants. What he does is good and right because he's God. And he does not owe us an explanation when we disagree. So the sin is removed from the camp. And Israel's next battle with I goes much more smoothly. The text makes it obvious that this time around, God is with them for their good. And maybe that's one of the many lessons of the book of Joshua. Whether Israel wins or loses, God is the reason why. They win with him, and they lose without him. Nothing they experience, good or bad, can be or should be separated from their relationship with him. At the end of chapter 8, Israel recommits themselves to God, which, after the slip up an eye, is fitting. This sort of thing surely won't happen again, right? Well... Keep reading the Old Testament. Keep reading the Bible. But what do we learn from this passage? I'd suggest two very practical lessons and two more theological lessons. We'll start with the practical. First, our hidden sins, eventually, if they're not dealt with, will find us out. 
even after we believe, we still struggle with sin. While faith in Jesus Christ frees us from sin's eternal punishment, it doesn't free us from the ongoing battle against it. There's still work to be done for sinners like us to put sin to death in our hearts, minds, words, and deeds. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit is with us to help. But if we make peace with sin, if we cease to actively fight against it, and instead give it safe harbor in our tents, it will eventually undo us. We may be able to hide it quite well from those around us, but we cannot hide it from God. And one day that subtle sin lurking in the shadows will come out into the light. Second, not only will our sins eventually find us out if they're not properly dealt with, but those festering sins can also cause harm to those around us. Aiken may have believed that skimming a bit off the top for himself could not possibly hurt anybody else. Thomas Jefferson once wrote, but it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no God. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. In other words, Jefferson was saying, let each of us do whatever we want to do so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. That's a perfect example of our very individualistic worldview. But as we've seen this morning, our sins, even the ones we consider personal and private, have the potential to harm those around us. May we repent of those sins. May we confess those sins. May we bring those sins to the cross where they can be dealt with before the damage is already done. And that leads well into the first of our two more theological takeaways. This passage teaches us about the seriousness with which God views sin. Again, at first glance, Achan's sin may not have seemed like that big of a deal. I mean, come on, God. You're really going to punish all of Israel because of one dude who couldn't follow orders and took a little silver, took a little gold, and took a cloak? That seems awfully harsh. Maybe even unfair. But there is no such thing as an insignificant sin. There is no such thing as an insignificant sin. In the words of theologian R.C. Sproul, sin is cosmic treason against God. Another theologian wisely observes, We are ever prone to regard sin lightly, to gloss over its hideousness, to make excuses for sin. But the more we study and ponder God's abhorrence for sin and his frightful vengeance upon it, the more likely we are to realize its heinousness. This story reminds us that when we commit mutiny against the God who gave us life and clearly revealed his expectations for us, we deserve death. That's how seriously God takes sin. 
And that leads us to our final lesson. Our second of the more theological takeaways. It's the other side of the coin when it comes to the wretchedness of sin. And that's the holiness of God. Joshua 7 is one of several famous, or depending on your leanings, infamous passages about God's holiness. This is one of those stories that ought to make us think long and hard about how seriously we take the one, only, holy, holy, holy God. In Leviticus 10, Aaron's two sons are instantly killed when they offer a sacrifice flippantly. In 1 Chronicles 13, a man named Uzzah is struck down when he presumptuously touches the Ark of the Covenant. In an attempt to keep it from falling off the cart, it never should have been on in the first place. And in Acts chapter 5, a New Testament story that's eerily similar to what we read today. Ananias and his wife Sapphira breathe their last when confronted with their sin of lying to God. These passages are scary. They're uncomfortable. They're inconvenient. But they are necessary, sobering reminders that while we as God's people can approach God confidently, And even comfortably, by faith in Jesus Christ, we do not approach God casually. May we never forget that God is holy, holy, holy. And may we not let familiarity with God breed contempt toward God. Speaking of Jesus, this week I couldn't help but think that this obscure disturbing and even frightening Old Testament text feels like a sort of microcosm of the whole biblical story of redemption. It teaches us explicitly about the problem of sin. And it leads us implicitly to the ultimate solution to sin. When we sin, we deserve to die. We can come up with all kinds of rationalizations for why that isn't the case, but we would be wrong every time. When a sin is committed, that sin must be punished. Why? Because God is holy, holy, holy. And because God is holy, 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 he can't not punish sin. Achan was not the first person to die as a result of sin. In the Garden of Eden, Eve saw something beautiful that God said wasn't hers. Nevertheless, she and her husband Adam took it for themselves. And from that point forward, mankind was guilty, was fallen. Remember our discussion about corporate, communal, collective identity And responsibility. And while Adam and Eve didn't immediately physically die when they took that fruit, they did experience a very real spiritual death that touches all of us as well. And since then, every single time we have tried to recommit ourselves to the Lord on our own, 
by our blood, sweat, and tears, convinced that this time will be different every single time we have failed. And yet, here we are. Sinners, but alive. Unholy in and of ourselves, but convinced that we are somehow welcome in God's holy presence. How is that possible? Why are we not as dead as Achan? Well, it's possible because the Bible isn't just a story of many people suffering because of one person's sin. It's also a story of many sinners forgiven, rewarded, and blessed for one man's righteousness. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Thanks to Jesus Christ, the penalty for our sin, death, has been paid by the only man qualified to pay it on our behalf, God's own son. And because that man lives, all who believe in him live as well. So by the Holy Spirit's power, may we devote sin to destruction. May we leave it behind in the ruins where it belongs. And when we are guilty of it, which inevitably will happen, may we repent of it, confess it, Bring it out into the light so that it can be dealt with. Rather than hiding it in our tents, where it will ultimately destroy it, destroy us. May we confess that sin, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us by Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross. And rather than loving things devoted to destruction, may we love the only thing worth loving in eternity, our holy, holy, holy God alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word, including the tough passages that don't get put on coffee cups and canisters in our kitchen and tear away devotional calendars. Thank you for the passages that sober us, that challenge us, that make us squirm a little bit, because often we need to squirm some. We're so often tempted to forget just how ugly sin really is. We're so often tempted to forget just how holy you really are. And when we forget how ugly sin is, and when we forget how holy you are, that robs the cross of so much of its power. If we think that sin is no big deal, then we might begin to ask ourselves, then why is Christ's death such a big deal? But Lord, the cross reminds us that sin is a big deal. Such a big deal that your son had to die for it, that we might be delivered from it. And Lord, seeing what you've done for us, may we be in complete awe 
and trembling and love and worship for you and your holiness. To think that you, being so good, so perfect in and of yourself, needing nothing outside of yourself, that you voluntarily would send your son to the cross on our behalf, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, help us confess our sins. Help us be confident that because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, we can bring our sin to you and know that we're not going to instantly be struck down. We can bring our sin to you and confess it, repent of it, knowing that, Lord, you love contrite hearts, that you love us as your children. So, Lord, correct us. Help us repent when sin gets a foothold in our lives, in our hearts, in our words, our deeds, when it burrows a hole into our tents and we're tempted to let it stay there. Lord, I pray that you would draw us closer to yourself, that your holiness would not be something that scares us away, although in some ways your holiness really is frightening but rather your holiness would draw us to you. And that you, by your Spirit's power, we having been justified by Christ's body and blood, that you would help us be holy as you are holy. We love you, we honor you, we glorify you, we thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.